Good morning, Spiritual Charlotte. This is uh, co-host Debbie Chisholm, and um, welcome to the show today. This is episode 47. It is Wednesday, November 22nd. We are just a few days away from Thanksgiving in this um, fabulously uh, full year, 2017. So we're going to turn the tables today on my business, my business partner, Kendall Heath. She is an ordained interfaith minister, and she's co-director of Lighthouse Spiritual Center with me. She's my sister friend. Um, she's host of the Spiritual Charlotte podcast, so a lot of you know her already from listening into us um, for the last year. And um, kind of also an intuitive medium, and she offers spiritual mentoring one-on-one -on -one here at Lighthouse up in Mooresville. Um, but before we get deep into the interview um, with her today, I just want to share with you a couple things that are coming up um, at Lighthouse Spiritual Center in Mooresville. So we have um, on the 30th, which is next Thursday from 6.30 to 8, we have our adult mindfulness and meditation classes with Mimi Sherman. They're $15. You can pre-register on the website or you can drop in on the class if you'd like. And we also, um, I, every Sunday from 11 to 12.30, we have fellowship. This is kind of our unchurched church that um, Kendall leads, and she will probably be talking a little bit more about this uh, maybe in the interview today. So um, just to stay tuned for December and January, we have some amazing things on the calendar for you to experience. And if you'd like to stay in touch and be informed, you can sign up uh, for more information about this. Um, by registering or giving us your email address for the newsletter on our website. So let's welcome Kendall to the podcast. Good morning. Hi, Kendall. Our normal is I say, how are you this morning? Yeah, and then I always forget to say, and how are you? And it sounds so selfish. <laughs> it's funny, you know, you, we critique ourselves about these shows sometimes. Well, I do. You probably blissfully go on with you. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it is a good question to throw back and forth not to be one way kind of a volley yeah yeah but it's funny we get we get into our own little patterns right we do that's the thing um i'm doing great i you know we tried to do this show time one and then it didn't work out and here we are time two and we have to pretend we didn't talk about anything we already talked about <laughs> right and even in our friendship we've already talked about a lot of this 12 times over 100 times over mm -hmm. um but i'm hoping that just by having an authentic dialogue that some new things come out that need to come out. Um, you know, we focused on getting everybody else started on with the Spiritual Charlotte podcast and Lighthouse Spiritual Center and decided a couple weeks ago that we were going to turn the tables on ourselves. And so your show was our last show? Yeah, that was episode 46. That was our last show. And so now it's your turn. Yeah. And um, we have a great... Uh, group of questions to ask you and um, hopefully learn more about you. I'm sure I'm sure I will learn more about you and I, I know our listeners are going to learn some things about you that they don't already know. And um, to understand where your heart is in this mission and your overall focus and really what drives you. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Maybe just at the top, let's let's start talking about, you know, when did you begin walking a spiritual path? And, you know, what were the life events that led to that? So that is a good place to start. 
I know that we've talked about pieces of this on other shows, so I'll try to be um, succinct here. But basically, you know, I, in early childhood, um, my childhood was pretty stressful. My family dynamics were not the most ideal. Not that anybody has the most ideal family dynamics, but my parents married young and, you know, we, it was a struggle. It was a hard, it was hard for me as a child. Um, and it was ultimately really hard when my parents divorced, which happened between, um, in the elementary school age. Mm -hmm. And, you know, divorce is hard on all, all children. Um, it was especially hard on me, on me. And so as I got a little bit older into adolescence and really probably before adolescence, I began to struggle with depression mm. pretty heavily. And um, I found myself, I think sometime around seventh grade, I went to my mother and, and had enough cognizance about the healing, the necessity for healing or the fact that things just didn't feel good to ask my mother to send me to counseling. And so she did, um, she helped me with counseling. And I think at the time there was a feeling that this was hormonal. Like this was like what you, I was my mother's oldest child. Um, probably, you know, this was gonna be part of the teen, teen years. But nevertheless, I started counseling and um, started taking medication for depression and kind of went from one counselor to another. And, was learning about some early issues of codependency and was learning about um, kind of doing more of a talk therapy, but mm -hmm. didn't really have the, the, you know, the brain development to, to really <laughs> go very far with it. Okay. It was helpful, but so dep depression was, um, was the early years of what is, has now become a healing and spiritual journey for life. And so, um, during that time uh, in childhood, I found writing and art, which mm -hmm. I which I talked about, I think, in a story that I told here on the podcast yeah. about 10 episodes back, maybe. But I found writing and art, which were both very cathartic for me mm -hmm. and remain part of the spiritual journey for me today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I moved into, into high school um, probably having more sensitivity than was apparent, you know. In high school, I kind of had um, the airs that I had it all together. And, you know, I was not a wallflower. Um, I, and I, in all actuality, I tended to be the one of the people at the center of attention. So extroverted. Yes, uh, although I've, I've learned since then there was really an introvert parading as an extrovert. <laughs> but, you know, it was... Um, kind of followed in my parents' footsteps. They were in school, um, the stories that they told were not stories about being wallflowers. They were stories about being in the center of the social scene. And my parents were physically attractive people by all stereotypical definitions. And I kind of fell right into that. I was unconventional. I was um, certainly challenged the status quo in many ways. I was kind of a rebel. I sort of went outside of norms, mm -hmm. but I had I was had the privilege of not having to worry about some social things that other people worried about. 
Does that make sense? Like what kind of social things are you referring to? Well, I just didn't, um, I wasn't rejected, you know, I wasn't on the outside. I kind of got away with murder, to be honest. Okay. Um, You know, there was a lot of charisma there. I was excited about life. I participated. I did have a jaded side. That side certainly went towards the party world. And and as I realized that I, you know, um, I couldn't really measure up to some parental expectations I sort of threw in the towel on that and and that rebellious side came out and I experimented with drugs for a very long time actually mm-hmm. and um, and went kind of into that misfit world but I still somehow was respected by teachers cared for by adults in my school um, probably in some ways put on a pedestal by peers this is a weird thing to say, right? Because as I'm saying it, it, it can sound like this this really strange ego conversation is happening. Mm-hmm. But I really did have, uh, I really did live from a place of privilege that I was aware other students around me didn't know what that was like. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I was gifted that. I don't know why the universe had me in this body and this family and this personality and, and all that. So... In some ways, I was able to hide a lot of things, Mm. and I was able just to invest in having it physically easy and together, because physically, I didn't struggle with some of the awkward things that people do in teenage years. Um, Socially, I didn't really struggle like that. Don't get me wrong, I was often the target of of bullying, you know, or um, people trying to put me in my place. But, I, but there was a certain level of I'm going to be who I'm going to be. And if you're with me, you're with me. And if you're not, you're not. And a little bit of a, you know, I learned how to play that game. And I learned how to kind of keep myself in a place of quote unquote power okay. within that game. Okay. Is that clear? Yeah, that's clear. So so how, how did that um, shift or change for you like in college? Well, you know, the thing was, I always had this deep internal life that I kept private. So while I was kind of at the center of social things in my school, um, you know, dated the boys I wanted to date, Mm -hmm. um, partied in the way I wanted to party, got included in the way I wanted to be included, kind of had the run of the roost in the ways that I intended to. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a personal life that was um, at home um, writing Poetry, where all my sadness came out, mm. where all my aloneness came out, where all my feelings of being alone in a room of a hundred people came out, and I was grappling with early childhood things. I was grappling with um, my father no longer being having a daily presence in our lives because our parents divorced. I was grappling with um, a father who was very strict. Changes, you know, in our life all the way around the board. Mm-hmm. And my relationship with my mother was strained because I was so rebellious and we had personality clashes. And so, and I wanted to do things the way I wanted to do them. And that wasn't always going to settle well with the adults around. Yeah, it wasn't always okay. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't always okay. So, you know, so there was an internal life that was building. And when I was 15 years old, I had the opportunity to meet a, an uncle um, who was a, from my father's family 
who was very eccentric. He was a psychic, um, homosexual man living out in the middle of nowhere in Colgate, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. where my family's original land is. And he came to my father's house on a visit when I was about 15 and read me tarot cards. This, of course, as I had entered into kind of a, a post or second generation hippie movement <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. that was happening yeah. in, the, in, the, in the mid mid 90s. Um, this was right up my alley. And, and so what my Uncle Jimmy said to me at that time was that I had a gift that I didn't know about yet and he wasn't at liberty to talk to me about it. Mm-hmm. But he started sending me books in the mail and they were astrology books and they were um, classics in um, kind of culti- cultish sort of spiritual liter- literature, if I can put it that way. Okay. And so... I entered into the study of astrology. That was kind of my doorway in in high school. Was it an immediate love for you? Immediate love. Okay. Because it helped me to take psychology and bridge it with how I could understand people better mm-hmm. and understand why they do what they do and, wh- and why that affects me. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so um, endless hours of play in the astrological world and... And of course, you know, I was on these mind-altering substances because I always wanted to feel all the outer edges of living. Okay. Were you still <laughs> struggling with depression at this time, too? I was. I was. I never was not struggling with depression. Okay. And um, so on and off of medication and, and again, um, keeping that pretty private as, as I went out and did what I needed to do to maintain my place. And so when I went to college, I chose Appalachian State, and I chose Appalachian State because it was listed in High Times Magazine. <laughs> it's one of the top colleges for marijuana growing. So truth be told. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and this is horrible for, like, my parents who are um, trying to get me to move on in life, you know. I'm living kind of in this world. I really was drawn to alternate reality. I was drawn to the ways that you could live that I had been taught were really not allowed, mm. or really not norm. You know, my father had one. He had very black and white ways of doing things, of teaching about the world, and of how people should live. And a lot of it was trying to get out from under my dad's thumb and live the way that I knew I needed to live. Okay, so it wasn't necessarily rebellion specifically for rebellion's sake. It was because these things were what you were drawn to? I think there was a spiritual component to it. There was a knowledge that my life was going to be unconventional, Mm -hmm. and it was going to um, talk about things that, especially my dad, had no concept of. And so, um, and I was challenging the the truth or untruth of those teachings, because I, I had a feeling there was more. And so, in some ways, I think this is the immature part of the spiritual path where it's kind of having a temper tantrum, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. which is likened to the stage in life of adolescence and teenage years. Yes. Kind of like, get get out of my way. This is what I'm going to do. Get out of my way. This is what I'm going to do. And I was always pushing the edges, you know. I was, was, if we got an opportunity to do a um, project in English class, I was going to choose something that was going to drop jaws. (laughs) I was going to choose eroticism, for example. <laughs> or if there was an opportunity to write about um, something for the school paper, 
um, I was going to choose to write about what happens on Friday and Saturday night and have to go in front of the principal to state my case about why that was going to be a legitimate, helpful article. And I would state my case, and I would win, and I would write. So early on, it was very much a, I have somewhere I have to go. There's things I know I have to do and a person I have to be, and I'm going to push against the fences that you all are making. So it sounds to me like your, um, your skill with languaging and conversation and I don't want to say banter is not the right word, but communication, verbal communication, was there for you early on. It was. It was there for me early on, and I think it was a gift. You know, it was going to be my way in the world. Mm -hmm. And by the time I went to Appalachian State thinking I was going to study English, um, that's when I really got, got kind of lost because all of a sudden that insulated world that I had grown up in where, where everybody kind of let me slide by and my mm. charisma got me a long way and people knew me and respected me and even with all these funny, mm -hmm. you know, things about my personality. Mm -hmm. um, all of a sudden, I was going to be the same as everybody else in the pool and I was going to have to do the work. And I didn't have the discipline or the focus or even understanding of why I was actually in college. Okay. I was just doing what I was supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, my world was opening up hugely with kind of this counterculture living. And um, it was the most freeing, experimental time in my life. But all, it was like the best and worst of times. Because with that also came more chemical imbalance mm -hmm. and more depression. Okay. And so while the, some of my peers around me could go and experiment with reality on Friday night and maybe Tuesday night and again, <laughs> you know, all day Sunday and still do well in school, I could not. Mm. And so I flunked out of Appalachian State. And this was a huge pivotal moment for me because it was the beginning of me, of the kind of the problems with my father really coming to the, a head. And Part of that was because I had flunked out on his dime, mm. and part of it was because he didn't understand a thing about me, and I certainly didn't understand him. And then the other aspect to it was that all that experimentation really had expanded my reality. I really did want to find out how to live life on my own terms. Mm. I really did want to find out well, maybe what I'm going to do now is go back to community college and do this. And maybe I'll take this philosophy class and maybe I'll do a world religions class. Mm -hmm. And that began to open me up to something that would take a long time. It would incubate in me for a long time before it became what it is today. Okay. So. Incubation, that's a good word. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, seeds are planted. Yeah. And they're fertilized. Yeah. And they need, they need sun, and they need nutrients, and they need watering, and they need time. Exactly. They need time to mature and, and yeah. grow. So, you know, at the top of the show, we talked about the fact that you're a medium. Yeah. So, in the time period that we've talked about so far, has that already become an awareness for you, or no? It really hadn't. So, what I did whenever I kind of flunked out of school that first time was that I started working on self, self-help and healing. That world was opened up to me by a book that I was gifted 
in college, okay. my freshman year. And I realized there was all these people around the world who were doing self-help work, and there was all these authors, and I wanted to know what they had to say. And so I'd had, I was lucky enough to have a friendship that with somebody um, who I'm still friends with today, who she was willing to explore all this and had the equal need to explore it. And truthfully, what we both needed was to do a lot of healing. Mm -hmm. And so we had that in common. And so we just, I would learn something and share it with her, or I would try something and then she would try it. And it would be in kind of that spiritual, metaphysical, self-help realm. And so while everybody else might have been focused on um, just the normal functioning of getting the good grades and going home for the summer, I was really focused on healing myself. Um, Which how many people at that age... What were you, 20, 21, 22? Not even, maybe? yeah, 19, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, honestly, that's very self-aware at that age, at that, at that age, and having the confidence to try and do life your own way. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's like all the things that you had, they just, they get used in different ways. Mm. The confidence that used to look like this now looks like this. Mm. The, um the communication skills that used to translate like this now come out as that. And, and the awareness gets intermingled with all of the, again, that temper tantrum of, of like, I'm trying to figure something out, but I don't have the language yet mm -hmm. to make you understand it. And you guys are wondering, what am I doing with my life? And I don't even have all the answers for that. And I don't even can't even pay all my bills, but there's a lot of stuff churning here. A lot of stuff happening. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the things I started doing was I started studying um, psychic work and the work of the psychic Sylvia Brown, who was on the Montel Williams show at the time. Mm -hmm. She was just very accessible. And I remember reading all of her books. And, you know, I remember calling, talking to a psychic over the phone who kind of stopped the reading and said, do you know how intuitive you are? And I took that with a grain of salt, but that, that would come up occasionally. And so I just began that kind of study. And with that study came a different level of reality opening for me. And my dreams, which had always been really visceral, probably astral in nature, um, became one of the central tools for me to explore all this stuff because I could wake up from a dream and go in detail about what happened there and then sometimes those dreams would feel like actual encounters with mm -hmm. the spirits. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to understand that. And when I was um, probably 19, 20 years old, I started working at a, at a place in Blowing Rock, North Carolina called Woodlands Barbecue. Oh, yeah. Been there several times. You've been to Woodlands, yeah. yeah. So, so you got all the Polaroids pictures of all <laughs> the decades on the walls and the sandy wood floors. and Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, it, to this day, it was one of the best jobs I've ever had. Mm -hmm. There was a family there for me. Mm -hmm. But um, at Woodlands Barbecue, to kind of give you an example, um, one night I was waiting on a customer to come in. We had had no customers. It was February, and I was um, in the downstairs area leaning against one of the old cigarette machines that had pull-out knobs oh, yeah. back in the day. <laughs> I'm just looking upstairs leaning against that machine, waiting for a, a customer. I need some money. Please come eat. It's snowy outside. And finally, this family comes in after hours being there. And they come downstairs to where, you know, coincidentally, that was the non-smoking area. 
They came downstairs and it was a family of four, mom, dad, little boy who was about four, and a little girl who, who's old enough to walk down the stairs if she's holding on to somebody like her brother, which she was. And I went to go take uh, the drink order of this family. And when I did that, this, the little girl wandered um, back into the hallways where the bathrooms are. And I, I got dad's drink order first, and then he immediately wandered after her, you know, around the corner where I couldn't see. Mm -hmm. And then I got mom's drink order and her son, and I said, do you want something for your little girl? Because I knew at that age, people often bring sippy cups and whatnot. And she paused and had this kind of went white, and you know, there was this long, awkward moment, and she said, well, we don't have a little girl. And I thought, okay, wait a minute. So I'm having this like fast heart rate, this scrambling going on, because I know that I've seen the little girl and her, her she and dad are still not at the table, but I'm having conversation with mother about mm -hmm. it. And um, and I said, I'm just sorry, I, I don't have any, I, you know, I'm fumbling with my words, and, I, and so I excuse myself to go get the drinks. Mm -hmm. And before I exit the room, she kind of shouts out, we had a little girl, but she passed away. Mm. So again, a very awkward moment. I'm thinking, why did she tell me that? I'm not piecing the parts together. And um, dad comes back to the table, uh, the little girl is gone. And so then we all pretend that everything's normal and I take their food order and they eat and I go out back at the restaurant and smoke 100 cigarettes, which I did back then. And so the anxiety is there, the stress, because I feel how did I so viscerally see another human being that wasn't there? Mm -hmm. And um, and even though I'm studying all this stuff, it's not occurring to me, oh, wait, this is now switching. So you hadn't pieced that together yet. It was still very kind of like, what is happening? Am I going crazy? Yes. Yeah. It was kind of like, now this is moving into high gear. Okay. And um, I left a note for that family uh, that, you know, I felt their daughter was still with them. And they and would they, um, and I felt they should know that, mm -hmm. you know, this was a good thing. And I slid that note on the table with their bill. And then I went and hid out back and did the same thing I had done 30 minutes prior, which was smoke 100 cigarettes. And so afraid that they would turn the corner and ask me, like, who do you think you are? Mm. You don't know what a religious orientation is of a person. Mm -hmm. And so they, they left um, while I was in hiding, and they went upstairs and paid their tab. And then a couple months later in the mountains, everybody comes to see the flowers in the spring. Mm -hmm. You know that. You used to live I there. I know that, yeah. And we were slammed uh, during the day one day, and this lady pops up out of her chair and comes running over to me and asks me if I'm Kendra. I said, I'm Kendall. And she said, we were the family who was in here you know, a couple months ago. I've come in here looking for you a couple times. When you have time, can we talk? And I said, okay. And so she said, we just need you to know there's a couple things. One is we put that letter on our mirror. We look at it every day. It brings us great comfort. They had more questions that I could not answer. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I had to admit to them, you know, this is kind of new for me. But they also wanted me to know that she was in a business meeting, and, and you know, Blowing Rock is like in the Catawba County area, right? Am I right about it's that? It's Watauga. 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 County. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Watauga, which is Indian connected yeah. county. Yes. And, um, and so she was in a, a meeting. I don't know what she did for a living, but a Native American man was present. And after the meeting, she this, this man pulled her aside mm -hmm. to say, did you have a daughter who passed? Mm -hmm. Because he saw her daughter all over her during the meeting. 
that was a big confirmation for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, again, I couldn't give them a whole lot more. I was thankful that they were able to confirm that with me. Um, but as as time went on, um, you know, I just more and more of those things started to happen with my actual eyes. Okay. Were you, did you actively say, I want to learn more about this? I mean, did you have conversation with spirit that said, please show me more and teach me more? Or were you just kind of doing your everyday and and things began to show up more? I was having those conversations, but I was also um, scared and also dancing between the extremes of how dramatic that is at age of 19. Mm. And... Some of the things felt a little darker than other things, and you know, I'm trying to determine um, where does the dream work fall into play versus the seeing with my eyes. Um, it would, it was a little disconcerting to be maybe standing in the living room with roommates where I had the view of the down hallway in mm-hmm. our, ha- our rental house, mm-hmm. and to see, you know, a 17-year-old boy in 70s clothing pass from one room across the hall to the next while we're simply trying to talk about where we're going to go, which bar we're going to go to. You know? so, and, and truly, in some ways, it separated me from people that um, had been my peer group because, yes, this was a group that was kind of unconventional and filled with misfits in their own right, but mm-hmm. they weren't really, they didn't know how they, they weren't having the same experience. Right. So... I had a friend who I could go off and get into the weird with. Um, but in general, it, it, it kind of created a little bit of a chasm for me with that, with that life that I was living. Sure. There was division. Yeah. So, so uh, probably another layer of the divided life that we talk about. Exactly. Yeah. And in many ways, that life was divided. Because, again, I was still participating in a lot of unhealthy things. And I'm still young, trying to figure things out. And I can't rub two nickels together. And a lot of that's going on. And mm-hmm. I began to study world religion um, back in school. Because I was in and out of school trying to make that work. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was a point where I visited a Buddhist monastery with my class. A monastery that was off of the Blue Ridge Parkway. Today, I don't know the name of this place. Mm-hmm with regret um, but I remember walking into this building at this time and the monk had a picture of Jesus beside the entrance to this Buddhist monastery hmm. yeah <laughs> and I thought hmm I said why do you have a picture of Jesus on the front door of the monastery and he said well I love Jesus it's, it's that simple that was his religion of origin hmm. and I, I received a permission at that point mm. to, to and and all of the anger that I had had in my youth when I you know because I had a lot of anger towards Christianity and religion mm-hmm. um, a lot of that received a big old healing and that was the beginning string of that so there was a switch that was flipped for you yeah in that moment yeah in the realization that oh I don't have to divorce myself yes from yeah, and I would grapple with that for a long time because, you know, when you first get an idea, you have to, you pick up more readings and resources mm-hmm, and it takes mm-hmm. a while for it to fully integrate. Mm-hmm. But it was a feeling of, okay, there's something opening up for me here. I went home that summer, uh, the summer after my freshman year in college, and this really was a big time for me. I don't know if it's the 
energy that is around the Blue Ridge Mountains. Mm -hmm. Don't they talk about Boone being this vortex? Mm -hmm, they do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I would rent these houses out in the country that looked on the mountains, and I would garden, and I would, you know, then I would go out and party and do drugs and come back and garden and, <laughs> and read. <laughs> you know, it was just a mess. And um, But I went home that summer, and, and uh, what I... What happened was I was sitting on the beach one day, um, really grappling with my ongoing depression. Mm -hmm. And I thought that depression would take my life one day. Mm. I was convinced that one day I would just probably kill myself. And, um, and that's funny, I've never said that out loud. You're gonna make me cry because no, I've <laughs> never heard you say that. <laughs> I've never said that out loud, yeah. I was convinced that, that I would die from that. Like it was a disease. And, um, and nobody could take it seriously enough for me. And so, but I thought that would happen eventually. I didn't know when. And I sat on the beach one day and my vision shifted. I can't explain it. I've tried to explain it before, but it was that, that the world turned, the world moved two degrees over. It was like I was watching children playing and mothers and waves and birds. And the only thing I can say is it's like if you close your right eye and look out your left, it looks one way mm. if you're looking at an object. If you shut the left eye and immediately look out of the right, it looks like it switches over two degrees. Mm -hmm. Reality did that for me that summer. And I knew something shifted it was it was a it was one of those uh mystical moments mm -hmm. in life mm -hmm. and yeah and what i was told at that time the message that came through was that i would never suffer depression at the the level that i had known it before ever again that this is going to give me a lot to think about now that i'm phrasing it this way and so i carried that knowing with me through the summer and went back to my mom's house where I was staying for the summer and you know a couple weird things going on you know I had a dream one morning that a farmer met me in a field and handed me this old dried up I'm sorry that's not what happened he we met to exchange corn husk and I reach out of my overalls and I hand this farmer this beat up dried up sick corn husk and this farmer, who was like radiant, hands me in exchange this healthy, glowing, yellow husk of corn. And there's a little bit of laughter between us, like, thank you for the gift, but I have something better for you. And that dream was so prolific because when I woke up, it happened early in the morning, when I woke up, my parents were off to work. I went and sat at the kitchen table where my stepfather used to read the paper every morning and he left the paper out and on the front page of the Sun News in Myrtle Beach was a huge photo of about the summer's corn crops and it was a nasty beat-up sick husk of corn next to a beautiful glowing golden yellow husk of corn okay. no I've not heard this either okay. here we are we're into new territory today <laughs> And that's just stuff you can't make up. No. I called my mother at work. I was in a, uh, you know, a total uh, whirlspin. Is 
that a word? Yeah, whatever it is now. (laughs) And, you know, I'm like, uh, this just happened, you know? And it was moment after moment like that that was like, okay, there's going to be something. There's going to be more I have to learn about this. There's going to be reasons I have to develop it. Um, And again, still living a divided life of, Mm -hmm. of letting go of the old and living out some of that connection to that life and entering into this new mystery. Amazing. Amazing. So take us through, um, you know, you've done some very interesting things, and so maybe you can give us some some little tidbits. I mean, I know you've spent time with the Sophia Institute. Yeah, yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about that and some of the other groups and gatherings and things that you have, um, that have been part of your path. Well, I woke up one day um, when I went back to Boone, and I, like it seems to happen with me, messages come through very fast and clear. Mm-hmm. And um, I woke up one morning, and the Spirit, the Divine, was telling me, you have to move. Mm-hmm. And I went, where? And it was, you have to move to Charleston, South Carolina. So was this after the summer you were just talking about? So beautiful. So you were kind of like in... in um you're in preparatory school during the summer, learning how to listen to spirit. <laughs> but yes, I think right? so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I got back, and it was um, I'd, I'd gone through a breakup that was painful. Um, and by the way, you know, love addiction and sex addiction had been part of my life always. Um, since my father left left our home, even though I maintained relationship with him, and he attempted to be you know a good father, when he left our home when I was a child, I immediately developed what I now understand as love addiction. So I had always been partnered with people this whole time. I'd mm. always been in long-term chronic monogamy. Okay. And had a lot of male friends in my life who very much cared for me, and that was by design. I surrounded myself with males to make up for that loss. Mm-hmm. Um, I always had a male best friend. Mm. These, this is how I stayed anchored in this world through that pain was to give myself what I needed. And one of the ways I did that was through chronic monogamy. So I would have a male best friend, I would have a bunch of guy friends, mm-hmm. and then I would have a constant partner. Okay. So I almost armored myself with men. Mm-hmm. So when relationships fell apart, they were always wonderful moments for me to re-enter my love addiction mm-hmm. immediately and or make new decisions based on a reaction to that pain. One of those decisions was to move to Charleston. I got to Charleston, first time I spent any time single since probably being 10 years old. I know that sounds crazy, but there's truth in it. And um, in Charleston, you know, the restaurant business was kind of what I fell into. And But at the same time, I was seeking. And um, I found my first husband. And after I found my first husband, um, I saw an opportunity to work more deeply in the divine feminine and take this self-help stuff into a woman's world. So I had this passion for how can I get women in the bars to start thinking more deeply about who they are and what their lives are about. So I started this gathering called the Whimsical Women's Gathering. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realize that was the impetus behind starting that group. Okay. Much. I mean, because again, it was an outer reflection of my inner life. Mm-hmm. Here I had this inner life, but yet I was in this bar party world still. But yet I saw this potential and knew how gorgeous 
the light side of the coin was. Mm -hmm. So I was both living on the dark and light side of the coin mm -hmm. and trying to get more people into the light side of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And again, really unconventional. People sometimes looked at me with two heads. People didn't always know what to do with me. I was in the in crowd, but outside of it. Mm -hmm. And so um, the Whimsical Women's Gathering, though, was an extremely nourishing little experiment. Uh, of a lot of women that came around and, and stuck with me for a minute on that. And then that opened up the door for me to say, I've heard about this place called the Sophia Institute, which studies the divine feminine, mm -hmm. where the author Sumant Kidd was the writer in residence, mm -hmm. um, who wrote one of the most life-changing books called The Dance of the Dissonant Daughter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I just... You know, I was looking for a place to incorporate, and so the Sophia Institute took me in as an intern. And I was on the inside of a place that hosts people like Gloria Karpinski and uh, Andrew Weil. Weil? 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 Yeah. I never know how to pronounce his name. Isn't that horrible? Yeah. But I know you. Doctor. The doctor. Yeah. He's no, called. no, not that doctor. Oh, oh, oh. No. Who are you talking about? The other one who I, I shared the book with you. That's okay. We'll figure okay. it out. <laughs> um, you know, Mark Nepo, um, um, uh, Sarah, Sarah, who wrote the Red Book. Um, I can't remember her last name. It's been like, there's many years of, <laughs> of, of teachers and people and books. But, but Sue Monk Kidd was, again, one of the central figures there. And I started to learn about the Divine Feminine and the Black Madonna and the stuff that was buried underneath all these tra traditions that had to do with really goddess stuff. And for me, I needed feminism and the divine feminine to heal the masculine that I had been impacted by, mm -hmm. and, you know, unhealthy masculine. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was a big part of the journey. And then, you know, my friend who I had had at Appalachian State, who'd been my partner in crime on this self-help healing stuff, she moved with me to Charleston. Okay. And um, she initiated me into some studies at a uh, place called Legacy or the Legacy Center in mm -hmm. Raleigh, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Tell us real quickly about that. It was highlights. Well, the Legacy Center was a place of a very intense life coaching. And so you would go to these intensives and really have to face your own stuff. Mm. There was no way to hide from yourself there. It was a very minimal escape route. And so I was able to do some really deep healing work there. Um, I didn't buy into their larger program, but again, it was it was me throwing myself as I always had, throwing myself into experience. Mm -hmm. You know, saying, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this thing, and we'll find out, you know, what comes of it." Yeah, immersion. Yeah, you would immerse yourself in it. Yeah, and the immersion made sometimes the immersions were brief because I didn't always trust the larger process. Mm -hmm. You know, um, sometimes I'd get in the immersion and be like, "This immersion is amazing. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. <laughs> I've learned a lot." But no, I'm not going to pay you fourteen thousand mm -hmm. dollars for the rest of the Kool Aid drinking. <laughs> <laughs> right. There was a level of not only distrust but discernment. Mm -hmm. intelligent discernment like okay I came for what I needed Thank which is you. which is a definite component on the spiritual journey yeah discernment yeah and so um, still living a pretty divided life restaurant business I got an opportunity in publishing um, book publishing which you know opened me up I was always managing things um, but then I got married too young mm. 
And when I got married too young, what happened was I, I really started to ask deeper questions about life and is this it and actually I want more of this. Mm. And my partner, I didn't know at the time, was a pretty emotionally unavailable and also an alcoholic. Mm. And so I didn't understand that we weren't going to journey that together. He was going to sit stationary in that particular spot and I was going to keep growing. And it took somebody from my past, um, kind of an emotional affair, let's say, to wake me up to who I really was. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny, you'll have people come in your life that come and that experience can have a lot of toxicity and darkness in it, and yet they still wake you up. Good relationship still wakes you up. And that did, and I left my marriage. And when I left my marriage, uh, love addiction was still my best friend. And so um, I fell immediately into something even more toxic and found myself a pregnant single mother. And to shorten the stories, I continued to study spiritual things. Mm -hmm. My mm -hmm. life as a um, anxiety-ridden drug user was over. <laughs> and now it was about being a mother. Yeah, things had to change. Yes, being a mother, becoming a mother saved my life. Even though the circumstances were not ideal and the birth was traumatic and the time in the life and the partnership was nothing short of a miracle to survive in one piece, mm -hmm. um, the universe knew what it was doing when it gave me my child. Right. And you can see that now. I mean, the stress, obviously, <laughs> yes. that you experienced in the moment with all of that, you know, you might not have seen all the blessings that were happening because of it, but yes. but how beautiful is the hindsight and the, the learning from the receiving? Well, you certainly learn what you're capable of and you learn what matters the most. Mm -hmm. And you also learn how to, you learn by doing it out of necessity, how to get into your own skin. Mm -hmm. Because I'd really gotten pretty uncomfortable with life at that point. I, 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 had, I believed that I was, I didn't know how to do adulthood. I didn't know how to do marriage. And I didn't really know I did, that all those things that, that seemed to be innate gifts that I was given in my youth like had vanished. And it took a, a process of going through a lot of painful things to see how untrue all of that was. Mm. Um, you know, after I had my son and went out into the world and, and family came forward and really saved me, as family often did, um, my journey took me to another relationship that was truly the rock bottom for me of being in that love addiction, sex addiction cycle. Mm -hmm. And that rock bottom was the beginning of, of I almost want to say that that was the second awakening. Mm. Um, because, you know, one of the tools that I used to get through that was yoga. I went to yoga for the first time and I ended up in yoga teacher training and that taught me to get still and to find out what was really going on with me mm -hmm. and you know I just got to a point with that where uh, I couldn't go any lower and I and I knew that I wasn't really living I was it was like I was robotically doing all the things that were needed to survive. I was doing really well out in the community. In the community, all that charisma had turned on and 
I was known for my work in the community, but at home, uh, I was playing out the love addiction cycle. Okay. So yoga was a, a doorway to help you be in the body in a positive way. It totally was. I mean, and yoga had messages for me. I mean, um, the father of yoga I dreamt about one night came came to me and spoke to me directly about the the power of a woman in this world. And I would have dream, you know, I would dream that there were Buddhist monks that were coming out from monastery and come and look me right in the face and say the kindness that you see in my eyes is the same thing I see in your eyes Kendall it was like the universe kept healing me in different ways saying you're not broken you're not less than you're not mm -hmm. worthless you're not um, the life that you've prescribed to of being worthless and not enough and having people reinforce that is not true for you mm -hmm. So I would dream these dreams where these beings would come and talk to me. Mm -hmm. And um, and then finally, and then even through all that, somehow I would find a way to increase abundance, make some more money, um, get out of this certain kind of trap I kept circling, move into a better living situation, make sure my child had everything that he needed. Um, continue to do this self-exploration, but I would find myself on my knees. I would find myself coming home from, from, from work on my knees on the floor of my bedroom, begging God to, to help me. I mean, begging. And then I would get the answer immediately as seems to be the pattern, which would be something like, I need you to call this person who could help you and to be somebody who never in my right mind would I call. <laughs> And then I would call them, you know, and that would be my spiritual lifeboat. Or I need you to go over to this, this spiritual community, which at that time in my life was Warehouse 242 in Charlotte. And I need you to go and sit there, and I don't care what you do, but you need to go every Sunday. And I would sit there and sob every Sunday through their service. Make no friends, make no contact really with human beings there, and go home. And... Somehow, by putting one step in front of the other and listening and listening and listening and making mistakes and listening and still smoking cigarettes in the stairwell at night and still dealing with body anxiety and still dealing with that addiction, somehow I would step further and further into the light even though I was still so enmeshed in the darkness. Stepping into your trueness. Yeah. You're so light. Yeah, there was a whole lot of fortitude. Mm -hmm. Even when I thought I was out of it, there was mm -hmm. a whole lot of fortitude and a whole lot of, I don't know, just stirring the pot, ruminating my way through, being in the pain, um, trying to get myself out of the pain. And the universe just kept working with me, working with me, working with me. It's like, have you ever had somebody say you do things the hard way? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. That was the personification. Yeah, but what I, you know, from, from the bird's eye view, I mean, what I hear, though, is that you were open to receiving. So you were mm -hmm. asking for help. Mm -hmm. You were asking God for help, the divine for help. Mm -hmm. And you were open to what what God and what spirit was saying back to you. Yeah. And you let spirit throw you the lifeline. I did, and I also, and also where I didn't let spirit do that, the universe 
allowed me to go to my rock bottom anyway. Mm-hmm. And when you get there, you have very few choices. Mm-hmm. And that there is a true rock bottom for love and sex and sex addiction. There is one. And it's when you find out that you are as alone as you could possibly be, that your fear of being invisible in the world seems to have transpired. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this was a hard thing to share with people who had always known me, but that was the beginning. So I had this huge moment, and this was what the moment was. The moment was that I stood on my fireplace one year in the middle of winter when I had, after this rock bottom moment, decided to incubate. I decided to eat what I wanted. I decided to come home from work every day and put on big fluffy socks and big robes (laughs) and, and eat what I wanted and deal with everything that had happened to me as best as I could figure out. And that meant getting real, um, real like in nesting mode like Mm -hmm. real introverted like Mm -hmm. going into that side of myself Mm -hmm. I was able to see my sensitivity that I'd had all my life my empathic nature I was able to see where this addiction had taken me all over the years I was able to see that I needed a true break Mm -hmm. where I wasn't partnered and I stood on my fireplace with a duster in my hand one night about 9.30 near my birthday and I said to the universe, what, you, what I have needed to learn from this experience, I have fully learned. This whole thing was about me seeing that I was enough. This whole thing was about me remembering the original essence that was myself because I kept looking for it in other men mm-hmm. and other people. Mm-hmm. And what I realized when I realized that what I was looking for was actually the experience that I brought to the table, I was the one that brought all the passionate stuff. I was the one that brought the unconventional, amazing surprises. I was the one that brought all the life into every situation. It was me. Mm-hmm. I had been looking for me. <laughs> and these partners were... I thought they brought it. They were never the ones who brought it. In fact, oftentimes they were vampiring off of an energy that was actually mine. Mm -hmm. I was the reality creator. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, I guess it's time for you to marry yourself. And then I also said this, online dating is an absolute shit show. (laughs) (laughs) And I went out of it. (laughs) But what I said was, I'm no longer doing the searching. When you know I'm ready, you bring me a person that has A, B, C, D, E, and F. They better come straight to my front door. I'm not doing the work anymore. Um, and I, I need to be able to identify them by these particular uh, characteristics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I went on with my life. Good. Yeah. yeah. And then what I, that day, you know, what happened that day was the universe for the first time ever. I had enough truth in the proclamation that I was making that the universe knew that it, I was that pattern was going to be coming to a close. Mm-hmm. The universe responded. And so later on I met my husband and um, after meeting my husband, I was able to take that thing of you are enough and build our mar- marketing company, mm-hmm. which again the universe graced me with some early things there. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to bring my dream for a family full circle with this amazing partner that I was given. Um, And then you and I were able to meet, Mm -hmm. which 
in itself, I think, was like the third awakening. <laughs> mm -hmm. Is it too dramatic to talk about our meeting that way? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I agree. I think that that's what that is. I think that's an, a very apropos way to describe it. Yeah. Well, when we met, what happened was I had done enough work by that point that um, and had maintained my faith all those years and I maintained my spiritual, my internal spiritual life enough that when we met and had the conversations we had, you and I now had a, a partner to like do this next phase with. Mm -hmm. And course we started meditating together and exploring this spiritual conversation and doing light language work together mm -hmm. and the the medium light that turned on when I was in college but kind of I turned back off as I started to survive the world it turned back on mm -hmm. and of course then we were able to start dreaming up um, this podcast and lighthouse exactly so, I think there is a whole second show here available for us in interviewing <laughs> you because there are a lot of questions on this list that I have that, um, and I'm serious, I think, yeah, I, I, think so. I think a two-show yeah. two um, um, interview needs to happen with you because there's so much more to talk about in terms of your work here and um, at Lighthouse and what your personal and your spiritual mission is. Yeah. Um, but maybe just to wrap up today's interview. Okay, I like it. Let's let's just do um, just a couple on the fly questions. Okay. 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 So, um, what's on your bucket list? Ooh, I like it. Um, what's on my bucket list? So. There's, there's a larger retreat center somewhere in this conversation that has a lot more land mm -hmm. and it's just bigger. And uh, there's travel. There's some trips that I would like to specifically take with you. There's trips I would like to take with, with my family. There are a lot of overseas places that are waiting on me to get to them. There's also an RV in my future. <laughs> <laughs> no, wait, that's funny because I've been looking at campers thinking, we need a camper. Yeah. We need, even if it's a pop-up, we need a camper. Yeah, there's an RV in my future. There's okay. a there's a travel around the United States in that quintessential state park way that, mm -hmm. that I will make sure I do not die without doing that. Mm -hmm. A lot of those things. Okay. So, um... What do you love most about being a mother? Hmm. You know, um, being a mother is probably one of, it is the most spiritual journey that can be taken. Mm -hmm. Mothers don't know that necessarily when they're in it because you're tired as hell mm -hmm. and annoyed and all the other things and you're, and you have your moments of magic but being a mother is not the same as how fantastic it was when you played with other people's children. Mm -hmm. it, it is very multi-leveled, right? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. um, it is, my child teaches me more than anybody else on this earth ever will. <laughs> that makes me a little mm -hmm. emotional. Mm -hmm. um, because, yeah, your children will humble you like nobody's business. And, um, and my particular child is my favorite child. 
mm-hmm. is the one if I could have, you know, which I must have. I said, God, <laughs> let's talk about this child. <laughs> right. And that's the one I was given. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. Okay, so um, guilty pleasure. Oh, man. It could be food. It could be something to do. <laughs> do you say it's food because you know it's food? <laughs> um, guilty pleasures. I do I do love food. I love food and I love chocolate. Um, I give me chocolate over wine any day. Um, I love shopping for specifically for clothing <laughs> and books and gifts, but I love clothes. Um, I love a really long bath about five nights a week it's one of the things that I give myself and um, I would say those are probably those are the top three okay and last but not least for today's show what do you think most people need to know about the spiritual path the spiritual path does not always look that spiritual it's it can be you have to be willing to go through um, the the dark wood. Mm-hmm. You you know it's 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 intricately intertwined with healing work, and um, and it, it is truly like a mess. It's not a success story. It's a it's a school of making messes. Oh, I like that. A school of making messes. It really is. Okay. And then it's a school of understanding how to navigate those messes differently and to um, come out. Uh, to learn from them in a way that gets integrated into the self differently so that the next time we come around the spiral, we have a different perspective. So, and it's highly personal. It is highly personal. Mm -hmm. Very well said. As always. (laughs) As always. You can always um, put words together in such a beautiful way. And I'm so glad that we got to sit together and talk today. And. I'm really glad that um, you have all tuned in to listen and the next show after this one is going to be part two of interviewing with Kendall and learning more about, about how Spiritual Charlotte got started and why and more deep uh, conversation about what Kendall does here at Lighthouse Spiritual Center because she has the most amazing gifts and she is here to share with all of us. And I think it's really important that we have this conversation so that you can hear it straight, straight from the horse's mouth. You can hear it straight from her. Thank you so much, Debbie. I, you know, this show took on a life of its own. Obviously what was shared today needed to come out, Mm -hmm. which, which I'm hoping there's somebody out there who who needed to hear this part of the story Mm -hmm. because it does feel like it was sort of like the first chapter, first half. Yeah. The first half. Yeah. The first half in it, the first half, you know, certainly informs the The second second half. half. Yeah. Yeah. In your work. Yeah. As well as your own personal journey. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Tune in next time. Thank you for listening.